Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 89, and I'm Roger Peng from the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab, and I'm here with Hillary Parker at Stitch Fix. Uh, in this episode, Hillary and I are talking about an article she recently wrote about imposter syndrome. We're following up on open source software and talking about R as your first programming language. Should we get going? Yeah, let's get going. <laughs> All right. So... Um, you have some comments about coffee? I Well, just it, I had an interesting observation, which is that last weekend I was on this trip um, where a bunch of us went to this house and all worked on like writing projects or creative projects in general. And um, there was an AeroPress there, and then I brought my AeroPress. So there was two. That was the only option for coffee, which was okay. sort of interesting because like the like most people don't know how to make aeropress coffee and like don't care right <laughs> so we had to like they're train called normal everyone. people <laughs> yeah there was like two or three of us who were like big nerds about it and then two of them were just like uh what like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so anyway there was like dupes of everything and when i left i didn't know which parts were mine and which oh, no. yeah and like i knew i mean for the most part i knew which ones were which but um like the one of them was like the kind of like opaque plastic versus the clear plastic. Mine was the clear. So like I could take that, et cetera. But I'm pretty sure I intended to take one stirrer thing, but I actually accidentally took the other. Uh-huh. And like it's bothering me. <laughs> like I'm like, oh, I was like, that was like my thing that I had for so long. And now I've like swapped it. I don't know. This is like the T-shaped like stirrer thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I was just reflecting on the fact that these tools, it's like you use them every day and it felt a little bit like betrayal, even though like, I think most people would be like, who cares? Right, right. <laughs> but I feel a little sad. I, I totally understand what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I did, you know, I saw something, actually one of our listeners pointed me in the direction I, unfortunately, I can't remember this person's name, but um, of something called the Delta Press. I don't know. Have oh, you seen this? No, but I'm Googling it right now. Um, I, so I was originally like intrigued by it because I thought it was made. It looked like it was made of glass, but it's not. It's made of plastic. Because <laughs> uh-huh. we had been talking about like, oh, if only the AeroPress was made of glass. But yeah. So I thought it was, but then mm. upon closer examination. Mm. Yeah, it just looks like it's like clear plastic. So I was like, oh, it's glass. So anyway, I don't think it's. I've seen some reviews. I don't think it's actually better than the AeroPress, but it's actually mm-hmm. a very different method. Oh, it looks the same though. Well, it's actually it's a percolation method. So like it, it presses. Oh. It's more like it, it presses the water through the coffee, whereas like uh, AeroPress is like an immersion method. It just like you just mix it. It just mixes together. I see. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. If I wanted coffee like that, I would be. I would probably try it. You know. <laughs> but but it seems like it's it's different enough that they probably got like sued by the AeroPress people, but then <laughs> like won the suit as a different. From the reviews that I've seen, it looks rather fussy, uh, mm. like way more fussy than the AeroPress. So yeah, the whole point of the AeroPress is like zero fuss. Yeah, it's yeah. I wonder one thing that you run into with like a group of five people is that it just doesn't scale, right? Like. And so it's right. like you need a huge AeroPress. <laughs> right. Did, wait, so did I tell you that I, I saw the AeroPress movie? Oh, no. <laughs> Is it on Netflix or something? No, it's not even on like Netflix. So it's like, so a couple of guys who are like, I think they're like YouTubers, um, they created like a 45 minute documentary on the AeroPress. And um, it's like you have to buy it on Vimeo, I think. Oh wow! Um, oh, yeah. but I will. Yeah. <laughs> so and uh, I, I so, so they interviewed like you know the the creator Alan Alan Adler, mm-hmm. and um and they go they look at they talk to people who've won like the World Aeropress competition and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Um and apparently the the guy who created it he actually um tried to build like a like a big Aeropress. Oh really? Yeah, like a like a you know like a jumbo size one. So for like multiple people, and he said yeah. it just it just didn't work. Yeah, like the physics are against you. The right. amount of pressure he would need right. to apply, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I I I would recommend the movie given that the, like you know you're using this every day, so it's kind of a it's a it's a good you know forty minutes forty five minutes. So. <laughs> I heard. Well, maybe they talk about it in the movie, but what I learned this weekend too is that like the guy that company that holds the patent for the AeroPress also 
like invented a form of frisbee or something. The aerobi, yeah. Yeah, so like yeah. it's just like this odd company that. <laughs> Did you not use the aerobi when you were growing up? Is it? It's like the frisbee with like the hole in the middle. Yeah, it's like a ring basically. Yeah, and is it like cloth kind of? No, it's like it's, it's plastic. Plastic. Um, yeah. Not a ton, but I also wasn't an avid frisbeer, so. Okay. I, <laughs> well, actually, I, in the movie that he said that they don't actually, so he did invent it, but they no longer sell it. I mean, they they sell it to another company, so they the only oh. thing that he sells is the AeroPress right now. Did he explain why he hasn't made a glass one? No, that yeah, that didn't come up actually. Um. <sighs> <laughs> I just don't get it, you know? It's so easy. Anyway, whatever. I think it would, well, it would be a lot more expensive. Yeah, and it would probably get really hot and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, silicone, there's like, silicone would solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible that there's trade-offs, I guess, to be made. Yeah. And and the one trade-off that nobody thinks about, I guess, is like, you know, health. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Like, we've all eaten a credit card of plastic or something. You know? Right. You know, I went back, you know, this is actually another form of follow-up. I went back to that coffee shop in Boston that had like the $11 cup of coffee. <laughs> I think about that all the time. <laughs> and uh, I was like, and I went, and they, of course, they didn't have the same coffee because they changed, that was like their kind of like seasonal blend or whatever. So mm-hmm. they, I, they only had a $7 cup of coffee oh. um, and it wasn't as good. <laughs> oh, yeah, that extra $4. Is... I tell you, it made a difference. Yeah. No, I just love that you're like, can I buy a bag of beans? And they're like... It's a hundred dollars. <laughs> they like look at each other. Like, are we got? Are we gonna? Okay, yeah, we can do it. <laughs> yeah, I had to get spe- I had to get special permission from the big boss. Anyway, Ogawa Coffee. Yeah, bummer. I bet they weren't selling it that often. Yeah, <laughs> but probably their Yelp reviews were negative enough that they had to stop. That would be fine in San Francisco. Yeah, that would fly there. <laughs> yeah, there's like there's a place that has like a seventy five dollar cup of coffee here. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. outrageous. It's like the special like it's been digested by a, like an endangered cat or something. Oh, that's well, that's actually that's actually horrible. But yeah. <laughs> wait, why is that horrible? I, I don't think those cats are living in like great conditions. Oh, do you know that for certain? Uh, no, I don't know it for certain. But also, I also wonder like. Like, how would you know that it was actually, you know, I know, I know. went through that process? Yeah, it's a good point. Like, you might just be burning $75. But you get the story no matter what. So that's true. You do get the story. Yeah. And that's that's 95% of I suppose. What I tell myself, and I don't know if this is true, but anything that's, like, kind of a smaller animal trade, if you will, like, <laughs> like usually you can't, like, what makes, like, the meat industry terrible in part is, like, the factory like conditions you know kind of industrial nature of it yeah yeah yeah. and so when you have something that's so small like you you can't like build a teeny factory for like the four cats that are being used to like scam rich people in san francisco (laughs) right (laughs) anyway alrighty. did you want to talk about this uh would i call it a retreat (laughs) oh yeah yeah it was super fun. It was like um, someone who, I mean, Avi Bryant, who is a kind of like OG data scientist, I guess. Okay. Uh-huh. He, he worked at Twitter. He's, I think, I I can't like authoritative, <laughs> Brian Capital like this because I don't totally know his story, but I can definitely make something up. But basically he worked at Twitter. He actually worked at Etsy, right? He, he left right before I got there and he now works at Stripe. And I think in general, he's kind of been an advocate of um, like the Scala slash Scaldine uh, language for MapReduce and everything. Anyway, so um, anyway, the point is he lives in this like remote part of Canada and he's in this collaboration with a friend of his who's a dancer to like create this kind of creative retreat center where people can come and, like, there's, like, a dance studio that's also this, like, co-working space. And so people can come and, like, dance. Or, and then, you know, Avi's, like, bringing people in with um, the idea that they can do personal writing or any sort of kind of creative activity, which I think is super cool. And so uh, he invited, he had someone, um, actually Sean Taylor, who was on this podcast, and Sean kind of, like, sent out, like, a you know, like who wants to do this with me? Um, and I thought it sounded really cool and I knew that I had writing that I wanted to do. So yeah, 
we all like flew to Vancouver, took a ferry to an island, and we're in a super remote area and just hung out. And then there was this big, a separate building called the studio. And so we like, you know, went in the studio and wrote and things and then would cook dinner together. And then, I don't know, the second day I was sort of like, I had like a very productive first day. So the second day I just like, they had these like e-bikes and so I just like biked around the island. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was super, it was super cool. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really fun, interesting experience. I feel like I've heard about this idea before and I wanted to do it. And there's, I mean, I think anyone who tries to do kind of creative writing or, I mean, not even cre- any writing it's just hard to get away from your daily grind into totally, yeah. a creative space. And so it was really effective for me. I mean, I don't think anything like that, if you go in with a lot of goals, it's kind of, you kind of have to like see what's happening in the moment, but I told, yeah, I feel like if you come, if you go in with a super strong agenda, yeah, it almost defeats the purpose. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I went in with an agenda to do um, some writing around kind of data science as a field you know, based on just like some things that were happening at work and like, I don't know, the spirit moved me to write this essay about imposter syndrome that has been like bouncing around in my head for a long time. And so I did that. And so it was nice. Like it got me back in the groove of just like, let's write something and let's read it over. Maybe have one other person read it over and just like send it out. Um, like I used to do with blog posts five years ago. <laughs> my blog is like the last post is from 2014 right. or something. 2013. I don't know. It's not, it's not recent. <laughs> so was everyone there uh, like writing, writing? Um, two of us were, uh, and then someone kind of had a project like a data science project, but the, you know, the Wi-Fi on remote islands isn't always like so great. And so I think he ended up just kind of doing a lot of yoga and like, uh-huh. and then, um, there was a couple that the woman was a musician and the guy, they were collaborating on some sort of album. So I think he was making like album art. Oh, okay. And, yeah. And then she was just like practicing every day. Like there was like this little teeny, like shed that you could go to. So she would just go in there and like practice and they had a kid. So you got the sense that it was like, ah, oh, free time. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was super cool. Cool. Yeah. You know, when I was uh, growing up, you know, I was and like studying music. I always like re- heard about, I was here about this place. It's called the Yado retreat. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. It's a, it's a place. I think it's in, Somewhere in New England. I can't remember if it's like Vermont or New Hampshire or something like that. Um, and it's famous for like, uh, or how like composers would go there and like, mm. you know, write their symphonies and whatever. So like Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein and a lot of these people would, mm. would go out up to the Yado retreat and just like, you know, do their creative work. Do, yeah. And I always like imagined it would be like so cool to do that, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, that's like a, that's like a year long fellowship, I think, um. Were there other people there? Yeah, it's only it's yeah. it's for all it's for artists, but they're all different kinds of artists. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. Well, this book, one of the books, it was it was nice. Avi was like, "Oh, like we can bootstrap a library, like bring some books that you like care about, and like write a little inscription about why you care, and leave it in the library." And so the two books I brought, one was the Designing Your Life book. Um, have we talked about that on here before? I don't think so. No. I've talked about it in my talks before. It's like, this was the book that introduced me to design thinking. Um, I, I, concurrently or maybe right after I did that design sprint. But it's a it's a course at Stanford uh, that they've written this book on. And it's like hugely prof, uh, popular where you're essentially applying design thinking to your life. Okay, yes. <laughs> and so you kind of are like, oh, like here's how I'm spending my time and like there's a lot of coaching on the non-judgmental awareness of like, you know, oh, it seems like I always dread doing XYZ, so like Right. Let me like set aside my preconceptions of the fact that I should be doing that and just like accept that I'm not and that's okay and like let me design the life that I seem to be gravitating toward rather than like I was a math major, I have to do math. Right, right. <laughs> 
Which I think is like, for that age, is like such a crucial... I remember when I read it, I was like, this is the advice I wish I'd gotten like <laughs> years ago <laughs> before I went to Hopkins. No, just kidding. <laughs> you have to be like ready to accept that advice too, though. I feel oh, like. absolutely. I mean, so it's not yeah. like it's a, it's a two-way street in some sense. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But I recommend that book um, when I do the kind of like design thinking for data science talks because it's just, it's very accessible and it's not... It makes it not esoteric to talk about design thinking because, like, everyone has a life <laughs> that they can apply this to. That's true. So, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, like, a good intro. And then it's just helpful for being, like, you know, am I happy right now or not? Right. So, yeah, I left that one. And then I left the book Cre- The Creative Curve. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which we should really do a book club on sometime because... I have, you know, I have started reading it, actually. It's so good. But I got, like, I got, you know... You know what happens. I got sidetracked. Yeah, of course. Of course. But we should definitely do a book club on that. I think it'd be. A good, I've, read, I've read enough to know that. I think it'd be a good choice. It's. I. I. That book has been a real paradigm shift for me, and so I totally agree. Um, and I think it's highly applicable to data science. Okay, we'll pencil it in. Yeah, we'll pencil it in. And um, so yeah, I left that one too, and it was it was helpful that I brought it because I ended up referencing a lot when I was doing kind of the more. Uh, work-related writing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, helpful that I have this book here. Like, let me <laughs> look through it. Have I told you my hack now, which is to listen to the audiobook, but also buy the physical book for taking notes? We did talk about that. I was, and I was just going to say that, like, this whole process required you to bring a physical book with you. <laughs> uh, it did, yeah. And But I, I was leaving them, but it made me realize that I brought my copy without notes because it was, like, a fresh copy to leave at the oh, okay. retreat. Yeah. So I was like, oh, great. You know... I know we've talked about it, you know, because I've actually started doing it. Oh, really? Do you like it? Well, okay. No, I, no, I take it back. I don't do the audio book. Oh. What, then what's he do? <laughs> oh, you have like a Kindle version? I, you, know what, you know what I've started doing? And this is going to sound really weird. <laughs> I've started yeah. buying like the ebook version and the paper copy. A lot of people do that, well, I think. Well, I guess that's true. Maybe it's not so weird. That's why they have like WhisperSync. You know? Oh no, that's for audiobook versus yeah. Kindle. I think it, I it makes it more sense if one is audio and one is not because I, I think there's two different like senses there, right? Yeah. And it's so it's uh so I think your your approach is like logical, whereas mine is like I'm not really sure, but no, I get it because a I think there is like a real tactile difference between the physical book and the ebook. Yeah, and then also you can carry the Kindle and carry the ebook easily versus the physical book. I assume that's part of it too. Yes, and I I think what it comes down to is that when I on the first the first read, I like to do the ebook version, mm-hmm. and then low commitment. Yeah, and also it's just um, and then I'm not like flipping around like I'm going from I'm going from beginning to end. Mm. But when I like to if I ever go back to the book and then I like to flip around, I, the ebook version is horrible for that. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Flipping around on an ebook is terrible. Yeah. That's what, I think I told you I'm just done with Kindle. Like, I'm done with it. Oh, really? Actually, I didn't yeah. hear that. <laughs> I, ga- I gave it away. I was just like, this is not... I'm done with this technology. Like, I have the... I have the... Um, I have, like, a Pixel book. So that can, like, flip into tablet mode. And so I'll still use that if I, like, want to... But it, like, it's more, like, paper size. So, I don't know. It, it feels like a piece of paper more. It's not, it doesn't feel like a book. Yeah. Yeah, but like just doing the like I did the whole book club with a design thinking book on my Kindle, and I just it's like I had highlights, and I just scroll through. I just I didn't like it. That was kind of the the tipping point for me, where I was like, I would just rather have, I don't know. It just it's it's like a compromise where nothing feels good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I I know what you're saying, and I think the um, so now you're just like print or audio. Yeah, and like I the. Yeah, for me, like having both of those makes sense. Um, the only, I think that if I didn't like audiobooks, then the Kindle would make more sense. Cause like you said, you can just kind of like fly through it and it's easy. Yeah. But that's not, I don't like, I would like vastly prefer an audiobook to that. So, yeah. I think yeah. the problem for me is that the visual cue of like how big a book is, um, mm-hmm. is a problem for me, I think. Oh, it's like intimidating. Yeah. And so like the yeah. ebook totally eliminates that. Um, yeah and so i just go it's just you just take it one page at a time you know what is that david foster wallace the ulysses wait is that it the like massive book by david foster wallace isn't that the oh it's uh 
Isn't it Ulysses? No, it's like I think Ulysses plays a role in that book, but it's called. Uh, oh, this is gonna kill me. It's, it's a it's a book that like everyone read in college. Yeah, and like people like display it. Well, no, everyone said they read it. Everyone had it. Let me let me. Yeah. everyone like had their copy. Yeah, Infinite exactly. Jest. Infinite Jest. Infinite Jest. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, it's like freaking massive. Yeah, I never read it. <laughs> Like I'll be honest there. I didn't either, but that's like one where, yeah, the the physical intimidation would be a big deal. But then it's also like you have to like flip through it because there's like these footnotes that are half of the right. book. Yeah, right. That one is a sixty hour audiobook without the footnotes. <laughs> I, I I was told that the footnotes play a big role though, so yeah, no, I think that people were, like, pretty mad. Like, oh, you can't do this without footnotes. Right. So, but anyway, yeah. He's so great, though. <laughs> anyway. Do you want to talk about data science? Or, I mean, we could talk about that article that I wrote on the creative retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a logical thing to uh, transition yeah. to. <laughs> it's not really data science, though. Well, okay. It's data science adjacent. It's data, it's part of... In the, in the sense that data science is, like, a holistic... It's part of like a holistic existence that data scientists are in. Right. Yeah. It's a big tent. Data science is a big tent, right? So you, you said you read it, right? I did read it. Yeah. So it was, um, came out, when did it come out? Like Friday, right? Uh, Yeah. Or Saturday, Saturday, because that was the day that I wrote it. Saturday or Sunday. Okay. Well, maybe, oh, you know what? Okay. I, I saw it like. Oh, maybe like five days later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, uh, it was on an imposter syndrome. And I thought um, it was a great... So I actually saw it. And then like that day, I was recording my other podcast, The Effort Report. And uh, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is a perfect topic because we always talk about imposter syndrome on that podcast. <laughs> and so um, so we actually discussed it a little bit. Uh, I, felt, nice. I, felt a dif- I, I felt like reluctant to summarize it because mm-hmm. it's like... I feel like you, need kind of, you kind of need to read the whole thing. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I can talk about like my motivation for writing it was that like, I mean, the motivation was that I've I've always felt like we were, I think that there was good intention around the way that we talked about imposter syndrome where like almost always the way the conversation goes from my perspective is that people are like, you have it too? Like, it's like, oh, I have imposter syndrome. And then someone senior will be like, even I have it. And then everyone's like, well, if that person has it, then I'm okay. Which is like kind of true, but not helpful, you know? <laughs> right. It doesn't actually change anything. Yeah. Or like when, when really like successful people talk about being rejected, it's like, okay, that like, so the evidence I have is like, like if I get rejected, the evidence is consistent with both being a success and being a failure. Like, right, right, right. Like you've changed nothing for me. <laughs> And so it's, yeah. And then it just, I think like, and there's like an aspect of, it's like, there's very black and white discussion on it where it's like, if there's something that there was a genuine injustice that happened that made you feel even more like an imposter. Like, it's like, when do you point at the injustice versus when do you kind of like, like, work on the quote-unquote thicker skin you're supposed to have, you know? Right. And so, yeah, just wanted to, like, write about that and and tied in a lot of the stuff I've learned via, like, meditation and Zen Buddhism about, you know, kind of, like... Because the whole point of Zen is, like, to kind of remove your ego. Or not remove it, but, like, you work... This is, like, the central focus of Zen is, like, you have this sense of self, you have an ego, you have the stories in your head about how you think you are and the, you know, what you think your limitations are, what you think your capacity for empathy is, whatever. And you basically work on stripping that all down, um, to the point where it's like, you don't actually know anything about your, like everything you thought about yourself isn't true. And then, you know, existential crisis and then eventually Zen master. Like that's kind of, (laughs) and like the Zen master is the person who like even could die. Like they wouldn't even like defend if someone's like wanted to kill them, you know? Um, and so, yeah, just kind of trying to like tease apart, like, it's just so easy. I don't know. I feel like one of those grouchy old people, but it's just like, we've like codified our world into this, I worry, like, I have a younger cousin who had this whole situation come up where she was at a restaurant, and it was, it was like, a Benihana, so the the chef is, like, chatting you up, 
And she, like, she's a lesbian. She was there on Valentine's. She was, like, I don't know, 20 years, like, pretty young. And um, he, the guy made some comment about, like, you guys just need a man, you know, something that was just, like, objectively, you know, wrong in our modern era, whatever. Right. And um, although there's also, like, the complication that it was a Benihana, so it's, like, this kind of, like, context of cultural appropriation. So, like, yeah, anyway. yeah. It's... So it's, like, not really, like, <laughs> like what is wrong? Some people say Benihana is wrong. Right, right. But anyway, the point is, like, she... They stayed, and she then, like, didn't tip, and then in the tip line, like, wrote, like, you shouldn't say that to people, or something like that, and then took a photo, put the photo online, it went viral, blah, 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 like, the whole performance started of, like, this is terrible, right? Um, And it's just, like, that was just, like, kind of painful to see as a family member, not that I'm especially close with, like... It's not like someone I could call up and be like, hey, like, let's talk about this. But it's just, it's just like painful because it's like, did you not feel empowered to leave in the moment? There's kind of like, I feel like people are getting socialized that like this kind of like social justice thing is the only recourse. Um, And so anyway, when I see that, it's just like, it's, it's just sad because it's like, that won't, that won't solve your suffering, you know, it Right. Like, you might, like, long-term, like, help change the world a little, but, like, today, like, you will not be, I don't know. It just, it won't help anything. What I thought your piece uh, did a good job of doing was kind of, uh, kind of um, recognize that, that there are, like, real kind of environmental factors. And by environment, I mean, like, very broadly speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Just, I, guess, mm-hmm. I guess you call them kind of, like, political kind of taking political action against kind of these outside forces. Yeah, um, yeah. But at the same time, there are other things that are kind of like directly within your sphere of control um, that 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 can be kind of operated on in some sense. Um, and and I guess people, I, I think there is, I think it's it's reasonable to say, okay, well, we, we should change the environment, you know, such that, you know, it's better for everybody. Um, but not to the exclusion of like these other things that we directly control are you know that's kind of relevant to just personally yeah it's like the it's like if you are trying to change the world and because right now you are upset and you're like quote-unquote triggered which is like a word anyway that word's like complicated but it's like if you're if you're like fused with your you feel like a victim you feel fused you feel like you know your limbic system's kicked in and you're unhappy like that's actually not the right time to be doing political action, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like good political action. People who are like professional. I mentioned Dolores Huerta, who's like was along with Cesar Chavez, like doing all that stuff with you know farm workers and everything. And like you know, it seemed like a real professional political action person. Like they have like very good boundaries around like how they're leveraging this emotion right. at certain points in time and whatever. And so, like I don't know. I just I feel like the the black and whiteness of the modern era, if you will, like doesn't allow for that complication. And I mean, I think it's also complicated because you can't just like tell someone, I don't think there's ever a moment where you can tell someone like, maybe you should look inside yourself and see if like, like there's something you can do right now. There's no good time for that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no good time. And, um, and, and then also like the other thing talking about in the piece is that you kind of like, I don't know, to to very to say it very simplistically, like people have kind of like the amount of personal suffering that like that they that feels right to them inside and you kind of calibrate your offensives based on how much you think that suffering like it's like if there's nothing going on, you like elevate things so that your amount of suffering stays constant. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I think about it with temperature, right? Where it's like, you're so quick to recalibrate to where you are. And it's just like, you, you want to complain about temperature X amount of the time, you know? And so when you move to San Francisco, like, you start complaining when it's like 65. Right, right. <laughs> Versus someone in like Antarctica is going to complain when it's like negative 40, right. or, you know? Yeah. But like, it's like, that's that's a constant. Right. And so that's like the, you know, you get like thin blooded or whatever. So I don't know. Yeah. And then, I mean, like on the other extreme, there's like, there's a book I haven't read, but heard about like, it's like Man's Search for Meaning. Um, Have you? It's like, it's written by a psychologist who went to a concentration camp. Okay. And so, and then he kind of like used that as an opportunity to like study humans. And like, it's just interesting because that's someone who's in like 
the ultimate most oppressive one of the most oppressive situations you could ever be in and and like he was like kind of noting these observations as well so it's just i don't know like i don't think i can speak from a place of like extreme oppression on this but like there are you know there are people who've been in like very severe situations or like all the monks who've been doing this since the 1200 like it's not been like an easy road (laughs) for people so and i mean the other thing that i'm proud of with that piece is just like finally getting out there i feel like i kind of end it with saying like this will not actually cure it like reading this will do nothing for you (laughs) Like, (laughs) like you will have to work really hard potentially for your entire life to like get at this and but it's worth it but just don't have any you know i feel like people think they're going to hear the right sentence like the right one thing and like and people will point to that as like oh yeah someone told me this and it really changed this and but it's like like you said before you have to be like ready to hear it and that takes a lot of work and it just yeah takes forever basically (laughs) have you gotten uh any feedback on it yeah, no, it was, like, positive feedback. I was really happy. Like, a lot of people, like, there were many tweets where people were like, wow, this, like, gave me something to think about. And so, yeah. yeah, Good. Yeah. I was uh, quite pleased. So, <laughs> it was, like, a very successful creative retreat. Like, yeah, I felt like, sounds like I came, I saw, I conquered situation. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Girls? Uh, the show? Yeah. I- I've seen, like, part of the first season and i kind of fell off the wagon so to speak this might be in the first season where like so the main writer is this woman hannah who's like kind of a wants to be a writer not clear that she does much writing but right right and then there's like a scene there's like an episode where she goes to a book opening it starts with her going to this book opening for like a college classmate of hers that's played by oh Jenny Slate, okay. who's, like, hilarious. And so she's, like, at th- it's, like, <laughs> the most, like, insecure person. And she's, like, at this huge, like, you know, book opening for someone. And <laughs> Jenny Slate at one point is just, like, yeah, I really just water birthed my truth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I felt like. I was, like, because I just went and I was, like, type, 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 type. Like, like, I was just so ready for it. Right, right. I was, like... <laughs> People are like, how was your day? And I was like, I really feel like I water burst my truth. <laughs> I do not remember that episode, but it's, it's so good. Okay. <laughs> Jenny Slate is so funny. It's just a short thing. And then the point of that episode is that it reintroduces Hannah to like a college professor and like makes her kind of like try to write again. Oh, uh, okay. Which goes, you know expect like a a minor disaster of course and then um but jenny slate comes back at the very end of the series which is sort of interesting too oh okay you watch the whole run oh yeah of course yeah okay it's like i was like the target demo (laughs) (laughs) i was i I did enjoy it the the episodes that i watched but i think i I think i mentioned this before i don't know if on the air but i did feel that was one of the first shows that i watched i felt like oh i might be a little bit too old to watch this show yeah i can see that but uh, but I did enjoy it. I thought it was. I could tell it was well written. Yeah, yeah, I think I would enjoy it less now than yeah. I did. I've tried to rewatch some of them, and it's a little more painful the older I get. Like, yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> it's just about like people with like massive insecurities and varying levels of narcissism. Like, right. I mean, that's like basically all shows anyway. But it's like it's like especially I don't know. There's only so long you can watch train wrecks before you're like, okay. Why doesn't this person just stop being a train wreck? Like, yeah, I think at some point you just don't identify with them quite as much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the time when, you know, because Lena Dunham's exactly my age. So it's like, at the time, it's like, oh my God, this this makes so much sense. Like, I was going through exactly this. And now I'm like, oh God, 20s are terrible. Anyway. <laughs> it's kind of like, I, mean, I imagine it's like going back and reading Catcher in the Rye or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Which I meant to do. I have the physical book of that because they oh, yeah. did not sell the ebook i think they yeah. just started but i think they just started yeah yeah, yeah. Anyway. um all right I, I have something on open i've i'm gonna revisit open source software mm, yeah i've started i started ranting about that in the office to anyone who listens. oh really <laughs> there was i only wanted to point out there was an article in ars technica mm-hmm. um recently it's called in uh multiple open source companies changed course in 2019 is it the right move mm. um 
And uh, the idea is that they, so they particularly they talk about MongoDB, Redis, and um, one other one, um, Confluent. Oh, and uh, how, and basically how they, you know, it's like it's kind of like what we discussed. And they have this open source software, but the problem is that like they were having trouble making money off of it because, in particular, Amazon would just kind of like take it and then sell it mm-hmm, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. and but i think is so they they talk to people at the open source initiative and kind of like what's the meaning of open source and um and i think the problem is that like i think the problem for the companies is that essentially they want to say that their software is open source but they don't want to actually adhere to the principle of open source <laughs> software you know what i mean but they still want to like make money <laughs> yeah and i think uh, and the idea is basically they want to say that they're open source but they want to restrict people's ability to use the software. Mm, yeah. Right? I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. They don't want other people to sell it mm-hmm. or to make money off of it. They, right. they want to be the only ones to make money off of it. Yeah. Which I think is, it goes against the ideas of open source. And so apparently they like MongoDB submitted a license to the open source initiative to be like uh, certified. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of had these restrictions and they're like, you know, it's not going to work. <laughs> like the- yeah. Wait, how is that different than like the AGPL, which is like, you can use it, but you can't make money from it. Uh, AGP, I, I can't remember the details of AGPL, I, I, um, but GPLs is, doesn't restrict. No, uh, the point is that like, so freedom zero is you can use the software for any purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? And so GPL, that's, that's definitely in there. Yeah. Right? Oh, um, so like this was specifically saying like you can only use the software in context X Y Z, right? Well, but wait, no, but the AGPL thing says like if you're using it, if it's it's touching production code, then you have to pay for it or something. It, I can't remember. Yeah, I but I mean AGPL is still a, a free software license in the sense that it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't restrict what you can do with the software it just um mm-hmm. meaning like you can use it for any purpose but I, I think like like the regular gpl if you use it for example if you if the regular gpl if you you know link the software to other code then that other code must also be mm. open source too right? i see i see but that doesn't so in that sense yes that is a restriction uh but it doesn't say that like you, it doesn't say anything about making money it doesn't say anything about you know you know whether you can use it for this purpose or this purpose or whatever you mm-hmm. know? Hmm. So, well, uh, whereas anyway, like yeah. what these companies want is like they want you to they want you to be able to look at the code but not actually you know make any money off of it essentially. So yeah, what's what would be it's like transparent code? Well, that's just I mean it's just unrealistic, right? Like what's unrealistic? Oh, like you can look at it but you can't use it. Like, well, actually, there was think? a lot of there was a lot of code back in the day that was kind of like. It's open source for academic purposes only, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is a clear violation um, of genuine free software. Um, but right. it's very common, and I think most people kind of like were okay with it because they're like, okay, if you're going to use it for academic purposes, then mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want. But you're not allowed to resell. You're not. You can't use it for commercial purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding of like AGPL essentially. I don't. Uh, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Well, what I don't actually know any of this stuff. <laughs> Brian will be happy. I don't know anything here. I like the only reason I know AGPL is because it's this, the license that our studio has. Yeah, I mean, a, the thing with AGPL, so it's A is is called Afero, because uh, there was this company Afero, which was one of the first companies that um, had like essentially a kind of like what you would now call a cloud based service, mm-hmm. um, which was like super you know novel back in two thousand five or whatever, um, and. And they were trying to figure out how the GPL didn't quite fit, I think, in that framework. Because um, GPL kind of has this sense of like you're delivering software as almost almost as if it were like a physical object, but, you know, not. Um, and so I think they I think they modified the GPL just for that purpose. But I can't remember what the main differences were. So hmm. we'll, I'll follow up on this next time. <laughs> yeah. Let's just have a deep dive. Into... Yeah. <laughs> I... It's, I have to say, that discussion we had about um, where you introduced monopsony, is that how you say it? Yeah. That has been, like, the concept, articulation, whatever, that 
I've needed to describe our modern era. Like, like it, I think it explains so much about like everyone's angst right now. Yeah. Because instead of like exploiting the clients because you control things, it's like exploiting the workers because you control the clients. Right. And like, I mean, it explains Uber and it explains Amazon. It explains like open source. Like it, it just explains so much. And like, I see people talking about monopoly and it's like, no, it's really like even Facebook, you know, it's just like you get everyone dependent on something and then you can like go nuts on it. Right. Right. And you can exploit the, essentially the suppliers to your business. Yeah, exactly. Broadly speaking. And so it's it's helpful for me to just think about open source as kind of similar to like Amazon, which is crazy, but it's like it was like this movement to capture more users. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so and it's like come with the fallout that one would expect. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't expect it back then, but maybe we do now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I guess the only difference is that, at least with Amazon, at least, I mean, there's someone at the top making a lot of money, whereas with open source, there's, like, no one making money. Right, it's like, yeah. There's no one at the top, like, controlling the whole thing. But people are making ego points, you know? Well, so. I mean, I think just to, not to, not to belabor this point a little bit, but I think, um, I think the issue with some of these open source companies is that they, I mean, I think they want to make money off the software, right? And I think a lot of, at least back in the day, a lot of the thinking behind open source is that it ultimately, I mean, ultimately you have to make your money somewhere else. Um, so if you look at a company like Red Hat, they do sell Linux distribution, but they make their money off of kind of consulting and um you know, and uh, what's the word? You know, kind of on-site installation against support contracts and stuff like that. And they compete with other companies on that basis. They don't compete because they have some better version of Linux, right? Right, right, yeah. And I see. So, and yeah, in that sense, so the open source aspect is kind of commodity-like in the sense that we ensure that everybody can have access to it. But because everyone has access to it, it's it, in some sense, it, you know, it changes the value, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, but, totally, yeah. But I think these some of these companies they. Either they can't or they don't want to or whatever the problem is, they can't make money somewhere else. Um, and so they're left making money off the software itself. Um, and that's where I think you have a problem. But Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I still don't know. I mean, one thing that... I, I'm reading that book about Uber, super pumped. Oh, the Mike, uh, Mike Isaacs book, yeah. Yeah, have you read it? I have not. I saw it at the airport the other day. <laughs> Almost I, got you it. know, I can't wholeheartedly recommend it right now because it's like, it's like, hey, are there not enough terrible people in the news for you? Here's a <laughs> <the> book <laughs> about a terrible person. It's like, <laughs> and for some reason, the Theranos one was more like, this is almost just more like typical. I It's hard to explain. Like, I... The Theranos one had, like, a very interesting, like, there was, like, the psychology of the person that was just so fascinating. There was just, like, a pathology there that was just unique, I think. Yeah. Whereas this is just, like, a typical, highly competitive, like, bro. Like, there's not that much that's interesting about him, aside from the fact that he's, like, A, got kind of lucky with certain things. B, he goes a little farther than you would be comfortable with but it's all consistent with like one mode of operating like like apparently he really would like harass the lyft ceos on twitter in oh, the early days we're talking about travis kalanick right travis kalanick yeah. yeah and so but it's just it's not anything where you're like oh my god this person's lying like does like does he even know he's lying it's like no he knew what he was doing like, yeah it's right. not <laughs> like it's it's pretty obvious he did and like he's kind of horrible and <laughs> but they um Anyway, so yeah, but it's still, it's, I mean, it's just interesting because like the whole Uber thing was so much a libertarian thing as well, where it's like people should be able to work like without, and now you have like a huge fleet of like exploited drivers basically. And like, yeah, I don't know. Libertarianism. (laughs) Also, I think the the Theranos thing, like so much, so much of it was secret. Uh, So much of it was basically unknown. Yeah. You know, whereas I think a lot of the Uber stuff has already played out. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's definitely true, too. It's yeah. like, I mean, it's still interesting to see behind the scenes with like, you know, right now I'm at the part where they're like trying to like really oust him. Like uh-huh. he kind of like faux ousted himself, but was still like doing stuff every day. 
And then they like really oust him. And, <laughs> and then Bill Gurley, who was like the main VC for Uber, like the main kind of like, I don't know, mentor or whatever. He's, he's also on the board of Stitch Fix. And so um, there's like personal interest like in him. And like they even have a letter from Katrina Lake, the CEO of Stitch Fix, like being like, she wrote him and was just basically like, what the hell? <laughs> like, right, yeah. Why are you still involved with this company? Right. They're terrible. <laughs> and so then he's like, okay, I'll, I'll work to oust him. <laughs> anyway, I, I think he was much more enthusiastic than that. But uh, anyway, I don't know why. Oh, just libertarianism. Yeah. Does it work? I don't know. <laughs> Who does? <yeah>. I, <laughs> it certainly led to like some very undesirable situations in terms of uber and open source <laughs> i also think there's part of me feels like this you know it's like the whole thing hasn't run its course yet uh the book i feel like the book is coming in midstream in some sense yeah oh with uber yeah for sure well just yeah just kind of like with everything in some you know way i don't know uh, so it'll be interesting to see kind of where I, i'm still curious to know where uber is gonna go like i honestly like i still me question too. in my mind whether it'll make it you know well, yeah, because it's, like, not profitable. Yeah. It, I, there's a very good, very long read. Um, it's, like, in the American Affairs Journal or something. And have you read this? It's yeah, like, yeah. It's, yeah, like, from someone who had, like... It's, it struck me as someone who's, like, studied transit and, like, has a law background or something. It's, like, someone who was, like, very deep and wonkish in the industry already. Just kind of, like, describing all the ways in which it was, like, an abject failure <laughs> like like and and just like this this added no efficiency this doesn't even really get at the real efficiency problem which is like supply versus demand like clearly uber drivers are like full-time employees like this whole like thing they sold doesn't make sense and doesn't address the issue and like they're and like it yeah it's pretty discouraging and the book makes it really clear that this was basically just like like Travis Kalanick, the thing he did that was kind of evil is that he had like a really contentious relationship with VCs based on a startup he'd done previously that like, and so he like kept them really in the dark. Like the, the terms for his funding were like ab absurd. And so <laughs> there was basically no oversight because he crafted it that way. Where, like, uh, he, okay. he maintained control. They couldn't see like certain financial numbers, whatever. And like, but then everyone was so eager to get in on it that they agreed anyway. So it really was like scamming the funders, right? Like, yeah, and then that allowed them to like take over urban transit at a loss, and then they kind of offloaded the loss onto shareholders, and that's where we are now. Like they control it, and also it's not profitable, and it was kind of a scam the whole time, <laughs> and like it ex and it exploits workers. So like, hooray! Like <laughs> good situation we got ourselves in, and they they like actively broke the law to get started. Like they would. They they just like yeah they were actively breaking laws the whole time <laughs> right because, yeah 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 because they believed the laws didn't make sense right yeah. well you know making the world a better place yeah woohoo <laughs> <laughs> anyway that has nothing to do with data science this is yeah this is uh, this is quite the episode we're recording right now yeah I was gonna some I saw a tweet the other day reminded it you know it got me thinking about how people use R. Mm -hmm. Remember, remember that language R. <laughs> and, uh, I do. And the tweet was something. It wasn't. There's was a tweet was something special. It was kind of like how some guy was saying, you know, the first time I used R, I thought it was really strange. It was such a weird language, and um, and blah blah blah, right? Which is like it's not like a unique observation, right? I think mm -hmm. many people have said that. Um, but I, it occurred to me that I feel like so back in the old days, like a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. I would joke. So we, uh, Sean Cross was a was a, worked here, and he was like a programmer here, and now he's a, at UCSD. He and mm -hmm. I would joke sometimes about like, wouldn't it be ridiculous to like create a course, like a, a course where you like learn how to program, like 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 a, like, a, like a first programming course in R, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea being that like your first the first programming language you ever saw would be R, right? Yeah, and we would just kind of laugh about it, and be like, oh, whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That was my experience. Was that that was your first ever programming language? Yes. Okay. All right. Not. It's not as weird as you think. Well, I, well, okay. <laughs> but you, but you, hold on a second. But actually, I think it might be weirder. Now. Well, now I'm not so sure. I guess the, I was thinking that you know because my perspective had always been when I first started teaching R that 
if you had programmed, or if you were interested in R, you had seen another language before. Interesting. But why? Because that was kind of like the group of people that I was dealing with, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I can see that, yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about R as your first programming language. Um, and because I think when I think, well, what's, what's someone's first programming language? If they took it in college or even earlier than that, it's probably something like Java or something like that, right? Um, but, uh, okay, now I'm like, I've confused my entire story because I'm not, I'm, I'm wondering, like, if, it's less likely to happen now or if it was less likely back in the day. Um, because I feel like it might be less likely now because like more, many people are taking programming classes in college. Yeah, potentially. I mean, the reason why it was my first programming language is because I learned it in my intro stats class, which was like sophomore year of college. In college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then after that, I can't remember. It was probably concurrently or maybe this, I think it was junior year. I took a bioinformatics class where I learned Perl. Okay. And so then, and that, I remember, man, now I am trying to think of the sequence of events because I remember taking that at the same time that I took real analysis and thinking that those two things were like highly related. And like, I was like, that's really cool that I don't, I, I just remember being like, both of these things make my brain feel happy, <laughs> like in the same way, you know, it's like kind of proof, logic based, whatever. And um, I thought that I also took, I like, I can't remember now. I'll, I'll look back and see which, what the sequence of events was, because I really thought that I took my statistics class before that bioinformatics class, but now I can't totally remember. But either way, I mean, R, like, like it was, the learning curve was steep because I kind of, like, I didn't even realize that you were supposed to, like, save your code somewhere. You know, like, it just, the whole thing was, like, I, like, would, like, print out the history or something. That was a different time, you know, I think. Yeah. Well, no, because, like, I remember Joe Harden was my teacher for a more advanced class, and she, I remember when she was just, like, I feel like it was just like that like rare exasperated moment where she was like, oh, Hillary is so hard to read because <laughs> I was just like pasting my history. <laughs> right. it's, like, it's like, oh, uh, that's a good point. I should probably. So anyway, like it. Yeah. Like uh, my understanding of programming language was like zero when I started R because I feel like even if I've had this Perl class where it's a little more traditional, like here's how to write code. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like. I feel like, yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I guess if you're teaching it at the undergraduate level, then that's maybe, I guess, yeah, it's a little different because um, it's an earlier in the timeline. But I think, you know, I think I'm behind the times here in the sense that I've never spent that much time thinking, well, what's it going to be like if this is the first thing you ever see? Yeah. And uh, I don't know, it's stuck in my head. <laughs> Wait, so what was the tweet exactly? <laughs> The tweet was something along the lines of "R is a weird language," and you know, it it, it was it was it took it took me a while to kind of get used to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still think I, it's funny. I was just talking to someone about how things you learn in your first job you probably will always think are true, no matter what. Like it, like there's something about it being your first exposure that does like seem to implant in your brain in a different way than later on. And we were talking about it in the context of people when their first job is at Stitch Fix and such a different data science culture and whatever. And so, like, so as someone coming in from, like, a more product-oriented role previously, it's just, like, it, like, it, it still, it just takes me forever to override that and be like, wait, let me remember that this person functioned in this environment where there was literally no product team for a while. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, like, right, yeah. And so, and, like, and they're not going to be able to override that, like... I can see people like mentally override like now that we do have a product or it's like I can just see people like constantly having to like remind themselves of like oh I should probably like loop in the PM or you know things like that versus for me that's like intuitive and um, I, I wonder about that actually with R because for me like R is so much my happy place like I can just I feel like I can do anything when I'm in an R console versus like the command line is so not that way for me. I <laughs> <laughs> mean like the like the Unix command line, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so like it's just I wonder how how much that's just because R was like where I cut my teeth, you know. 
Well, I think so. that plays a big role. I mean, I feel I feel the same way. I mean, I think I kind of use. I think R has all these capabilities that are uh, kind of you know shell like. You know, like I kind mm-hmm. of lean on it. I think way more than I should is what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, wait, but now if you feel that way and R wasn't your first language, and that's kind of counter to my point. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess I kind of abandoned that other stuff, like I, because I learned that before R, obviously. But I think you know what the problem is that I got. I learned it before. You know, there has to be like a moment where you're like really, you know, even though you learn something, maybe you don't actually you like really use it in a kind of kind of production type setting until a certain point. And I think a lot of the Unix and kind of like shell stuff and that I you know I learned it in college and whatnot. But you know, I was never put in an environment where I had to like really produce something with those tools. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Whereas like R, you know, was maybe the first place where it's like. Okay, now you got to like make you got to produce real results with this language, right? Yeah, and you'll take the time to learn. If you like run into a hurdle, you'll actually learn the result versus just like googling for it and pasting it in. Right, right, yeah. I think the yeah. only thing, other thing that's kind of like that for me is C programming. Like, I, I when I learned C, like I was in like an actual job where like you had to like write real things, um, mm-hmm. and so that kind of like stuck in my brain a lot. But that was just that's long enough ago that like, uh, you know it's gone now (laughs) Mm -hmm. right right yeah okay well then that's counter to my point as i said so i take it's that's just funny that i mean you've probably taught people their first programming language before yeah i guess i guess that's true i don't know what i don't know what i'm talking about i don't know (laughs) there you go brian will be happy It's just, yeah, like, I I mean, you definitely introduced me to, like, Git, and that was horrible, and I still resent it. No, I'm just kidding. You're, you're <laughs> welcome. Like, version control. No, I definitely, I, I definitely benefited from you teaching it, and I still have no clue what I'm doing. I really, talk about something I need to get more comfortable with, but also talk about one of, like, the worst GUIs, <laughs> not GUI-ness, like, like, UIs, I should say. Like, system designs, kind of. Yeah, yeah. it's just, like... It'll it'll never recover. As like, there's no way they can fix that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the um, I actually actually GitHub did make a GUI for merge conflicts that is pretty good. Like, it oh actually really? Helped. Yeah, like it, it's it's like the first time I confidently navigated a merge conflict without like <laughs> having nightmares. Where, cause, yeah, it just like it is simple. It just it like puts up the file and it highlights like this is the part that's different, and like you just delete the stuff that you want to go away, and then you click save. Like it, it, it made it like very intuitive. Is that a so, web tool or is it like a like an application? It's a web tool. Okay. Yeah, it's like if you need to, if you have a branch that you're trying to merge in, and you have a merge conflict, I think you can like open up this like GUI editor. And it's like helpfully highlighted the areas you need to go to, okay. and like, and then like the little ASCII like before, after because they've also highlighted it. It just makes more sense. I don't know. It's like there are very minor changes that make a big deal. Yeah. I, I've used many a merge conflict editor, and I've never used one that I thought made sense. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe okay. So this is the one you're saying. I yeah. I just like give yourself a merge conflict and. Go take a spin. Okay. See what happens. But it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I think just because you're already, if you're, like, comfortable merging, I think it's just, it was, like, you already gotten comfortable with using the GitHub GUI to do the the merge to master. You yeah, know? yeah. And so it's just, like, it's very in line with that workflow. So it's not like, oh, this is a separate tool just for doing this one thing. Got it's it, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just all folds together really easily, so... And they, I think they have some helpful words that are like, don't worry. Like, <laughs> like you can still merge. You just have to do this one thing. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I can't say, I, I still don't use the GitHub web interface that much, to be honest. Wow. You don't use it to merge or anything? I mean, frankly, I don't use it like that much period but um no i don't no i don't use it for merging or anything like that they all your it's almost all your stuff solo uh yeah i mean almost all of it is i don't (laughs) i don't do a lot of contributing to other packages yeah um 
but I do, you know, I do use it to like share with other people. No, that makes sense. I, um, what was I going to say? If you, like, I can't imagine commenting on things outside of the GUI. I mean, I don't even think you can. I don't think that's a Git thing. No, that's, that's a GitHub, GitHub thing for sure. Yeah. yeah, which is like, I mean, that's pretty huge for, like, if you're doing this in a group team setting, people are going to want to comment and be like, hey, maybe you should change this to this. Or like, can you add a comment here? Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's funny that you say that because I feel like, <laughs> like other, I, mean, I think it's just the nature of like, maybe the setting that I'm in. But like, I like I would I would be delighted if people actually wanted to comment on the, you know, oh, usually yeah. it's like you struggle to get people to comment on stuff. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You just have to add in someone's job responsibility and like hint that they, sh- it's like the review process. It's like hint that they seem smarter if they leave careful comments, you know? So like, <laughs> like give people, make this a way for them to prove themselves as smart enough to be on the team. So like, like stoke their imposter syndrome. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. I'm getting conflicting <laughs> advice here. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't have, I don't really have the authority to do that to anybody. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Um, Wait, you're a grad student. Yes, you do. Well, okay. If it were a student, that's what. But if I'm like collaborating with some other, you know, like professor. You yeah. Know, I, no, I, just be really condescending to them all the time, and like be like, I don't think you're. <laughs> I remember once it's like people who. You, you know, you know what you're giving me right now. Yeah. This is the dark arts of team management. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't use any of the things I'm saying, but I'm just I'm just spitballing here. Right, right, right. If I were like an evil ruler, this is what I would do. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like it's like even people who've like mastered like if you really want to test someone if they've like if they cuz people will seem like they don't have an ego and like I think people I think many people in this field so A, we're in a subset. The data science group is like a subset of people who have been competing on intellect for most of their lives, right? Like like that whole imposter syndrome thing, if you like gave it to people like artists or people in sales or whatever, they'd be like, what? Like, you know, like it doesn't, they have it for other things, but not for competing for intelligence necessarily. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, yep. And so anyway, but the point is like, <laughs> so you take the subset of people and then I think a lot of people within that subset have learned that it's like distasteful to show your ego. So they've like learned how to hide it, you know, and like, but then the easiest way to get it out is to suggest that they're wrong at something, you know, <laughs> yeah. or like, or like to, even more so to, to like sa- say something wrong, but sound certain of it, you know? Yeah. And then they have to like jump in and be like, no, 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 you're wrong. Like, right. <laughs> So that you're saying anyway. I, you should be baiting people, basically. Exactly. Like you, that's how to bait people and figure out: are they really? Do they really not have an ego, or are they just hiding it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna. Th- you've given me a lot to think about. <laughs> I say that as someone who like. <laughs> I mean, come on, we're all just hiding the ego. Like none of us are the Zen master, so <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm easy to bait. Is what I'm <laughs> but um. <laughs> The anyway, so yeah, comments can be a good way to do that. Um, because I actually, you know, I had that recently where there was a PR from someone else on our team, and it actually was like, because usually I'm like, there's definitely the impulse every time to be like, I'm just gonna say it's fine, like, I don't even want to look over it, and then it's like, no, 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 I should, and then I, I genuinely discovered a problem, like a big problem, and and it, it, and it was like something that I'm an expert on because it, it was about like the data itself and how it was collected and like some flaws and like the design early on. And, and so like, I got to like, be like, Oh, this is actually a problem. And here was like the product decision from 2017 that like resulted in that. And I've been in several conversations about it, you know, like I got to, I got to like really show my deep knowledge of it and it totally (laughs) does feel good. It's like, yeah, then the person's like, wow, thank you. Like this is, I would have totally, this would have caused a huge problem. I'm like, yes. You're welcome. You're right. Like, I I saved the day with my pedantic knowledge. Like I feel good. Pat myself on the back. So that's how to do it, Roger. Okay. Let's <laughs> learn. Get people to care about your approval. <laughs> well, I think that, that now you've seen you've uh, hit upon the critical flaw, which is that nobody cares about my approval. So well, but that's like because you're nice. That's like, true. <laughs> I gotta change. I gotta change this. Yeah, I gotta change up. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can switch it up. Yeah. So you can get it. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? 
I feel like I had something else along the dark arts line, but I totally forget it now. <laughs> well, you know, keep hold on to that thought, and I think um, I think maybe we should have like a special episode of the dark arts <laughs> on the dark arts. <laughs> how to how to manipulate? It's like the game, but for intellectual work. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who don't know, the game is like a dating book. <laughs> It's like where the term neg came from. Oh, yeah. Have you heard about Yeah. Yeah. It's like how to like lightly insult someone so that they want to like win your approval. And, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, so, I feel like I may regret suggesting this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like legit terrible at all of it. Like I, <laughs> I'm not someone, this is not how I operate in case that's not clear. Yes. I think we yeah. should make that extra clear. <laughs> But, like, I I do admire it, basically, because <laughs> it's just, like, how would you do that? That's amazing. Why did, God, I do feel like I had something else, but I think I'm just going to have to let it go. Because, All right. yeah, like, I really don't remember. We're, now we're, like, so far down GitHub and first programming languages. Yeah. This was a weird episode. <laughs>